Take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, as we continue our study of Isaiah 9-6, a four-part series leading up uh, to Christmas as we're looking at the four gifts of Christmas, all listed there in Isaiah 9-6, those gifts given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We'll get there in Isaiah chapter 9 in just a moment. Before we do, I, I want to remind you of a story that I'm confident every single one of you know. I would even say if this is the first time you have ever been in a church in your life, you already know this story. Israel is at war with the Philistines. It's the classic battle scene. There is a mountain here and a mountain here and a massive valley in between. And over here stands the army of Israel and over here stands the army of the Philistines. And they've been battling in the valley. Now, we don't know exactly when this happened, but we know that at some point, coming out from the Philistine army was a giant who came to the edge of the valley and made a wager with the army of Israel. It was a winner-take-all. What the giant said is this. He said, listen, if you'll find anyone who will fight me and they win, all of our nation will be your slaves forever. But if you send someone to me and I win, then all of you are our slaves forever. And he invites someone to a battle. Now, this goes on day after day after day. Every single day, uh, Goliath would step out from the Philistine army. He would once again renew his challenge. He would taunt them. He would make fun of them. He would constantly be inviting someone to come and to fight with him. And listen, for 40 days, no one volunteered. For 40 days, this giant by the name of Goliath stood over the army of Israel and taunted them and cursed at them and invited someone to come and fight him, and no one was willing to do it. That is until a teenage shepherd boy arrived on the battlefield because he was delivering a tray of cheese from his father to his brothers. His brothers were fighting in the battle, and David's father said, David, I want you to go and take some food to your brothers. And so he does. And as he's there, he notices no one's fighting. And he stays around for a while. And the next morning, he discovers why. He hears as Goliath steps out and begins to taunt the people of Israel. And so David just asks, what's going on? And they tell him the story that if anyone is willing to go fight this giant and they win, then we've won the whole battle. It's over right there. He says, well, how long has this been going on? Well, for 40 days they've been taunting us and nothing has happened. And all of a sudden, welling up inside of David was a bit of holy anger. He could not believe that no one had gone to challenge this giant. So David says, well, well maybe I'll do it. His brothers get angry with him. His brothers tell him to go back home uh, to the sheep. But he's convinced he's going to do this. Now, the whole thing was humiliating enough. I mean, all of the people of God were being humiliated here at this moment. And then to have a young teenage boy who has seemingly no battle experience to come and say he's going to fight the giant is huge. Because remember, if he loses, the entire nation of Israel becomes the servant of the Philistines. But David goes to Saul, the king, and he says, listen, don't worry anymore. Don't be afraid. I'm going to go and I'm going to fight the giant. Can't talk him out of it. But David goes and 
He gets Saul's armor. All of the armor was placed upon David, and you know the story. David says, well, this doesn't work. I can barely move in this. So David runs, and he gets his slingshot. And he decides with nothing but his slingshot, he's going to go face the giant and listen to what happened. It said, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. And I will give you the dead bodies of hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he swung it and he struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and he took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. That's a great story. Now, here's what I wonder when I think about this. So here's a massive army of Israelites, well-equipped and trained for battle with all of the military weapons. There's one man over here challenging any one of these to a battle. So my question is, why is it that the only one who volunteered to come and fight the giant was a teenage shepherd? Like, what separated David from the rest of everyone else? It certainly wasn't training. It wasn't skill. It wasn't size. It wasn't strength. In every way, David seemed the one most ill-equipped to fight this battle. Yet David not only volunteers for the battle, he runs toward the battle convinced he's going to win. He even responds to Goliath's taunts with the taunts of his own. David comes to battle and talks trash. So so what's, what's the difference? The difference is is simply this. David believed that God was bigger than Goliath and that God was going to fight for him. That's it. Now, I think almost everyone probably in theory believed that God was bigger. I mean, this was a battle of the gods. This is why this mattered so much. It wasn't just a battle of two nations. The Philistines had their gods and Israel had their God. And this was a battle for supremacy. And all of a sudden it stirred up in David's heart some holy zeal saying, we cannot let these people mock our gods. And with this zeal of the Lord, he ran into the battle, not only believing that God was strong, but believing that he was going to go into that battle with the Lord's help. And the victory would belong to the Lord. Now last week we began to look at Isaiah 9-6. 
these four gifts that God has given to us in Jesus Christ at Christmas. It says this in Isaiah 9. For to us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called, and here are these four gifts of Christmas, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We looked at Wonderful Counselor last week, a gift that has been given to you, which is a great gift because as we said last week, you need counseling and you need good counseling. So God, knowing that has given you the gift of a wonderful counselor. But this morning, we see that God has given us the gift of a mighty God. He's given us the gift of a mighty God. Now, now, what does that mean? What, What do you do with that kind of gift? What does it mean that God has given us this gift of a mighty God. Let's meditate on it for a few minutes together this morning. When you look at that phrase right there, mighty God, it's made up of two Hebrew words, El Gabor. Now, the first Hebrew word, El, is a word that is used throughout the book of Isaiah, and every single time it's used, without exception, it refers to deity. It refers to God himself. Meaning, in unquestionable terms, Isaiah says what has been said over and over and over in Scripture and has continued to be affirmed throughout the New Testament that the baby that is born is God in the flesh. This is God laying in that manger is God descending upon us, humbling himself, taking on the form of a human being. This is God in the flesh. This is why Colossians 2 says, in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. Fully man and fully God. This is why John 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. There is nothing that has ever been created that was not created through Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, John 1 both affirm that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the creator and sustainer and Lord over all of the universe. And the reason this is important, and you know this, but let me remind you of this, is that what separates Christianity from every other religion is instead of it being constantly our attempt to get to God, the entire gospel of Jesus Christ is God taking the first step and coming to us. Because in our own flesh, we can never get to God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no spiritual life. The only reason you have any desire for God or love for God or affection for God or relationship with God is because God started it. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God takes the initiative. And when we could not get to God, God comes to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Be assured, Jesus Christ is God. El. But it is El Gabor. Now, Gabor is the adjective that describes God. And you see this in many of the names of God. El Ohim, El Shaddai. These are adjectives describing God. But here is one that means something a bit different. El Gabor, the word Gabor means a strong and mighty warrior. It means a champion. In other words, the God that has come is a mighty warrior God. Gabor. Now, I don't know how this was created. It might have been, as David experienced 
this humiliating moment where all of Israel's soldiers would not fight one giant. But we know that in David's time, he had a group of men called David's Mighty Men. Remember these? There's 37 of them. They're the special forces of Israel. And the Bible gives us these little glimpses. They're subtle, and you've got to look carefully for them, about how mighty these men actually were. There's one named Benai, who it tells us on a snowy day killed a lion with his bare hands. This same mighty warrior faced a seven-foot Egyptian in hand-to-hand combat. And what Benai did is he went and took the Egyptian's sword from his hand and then killed the Egyptian with his own sword. Another one of the mighty warriors we know in a battle, himself in hand-to-hand combat, in one battle, killed 800 men. These were tough dudes. These were mighty warriors. These were the special forces. And in Hebrew, you know what they're called? The Geborim. The Geborim. They're the mighty warriors. They're the strongest champions. And that's the word it used to describe God. So you put these together. And what Isaiah is saying is you've been given the gift of a God who is a mighty warrior. A God who is a champion. A warrior God who's supernatural, undefeatable, unstoppable, and powerful. And this is the one that God says he has given to you. Martin Luther calls him the hero of strength. Because as a mighty warrior, he comes across as a hero figure. He is strong and cannot be defeated. Remember that story when Israel was leaving Egypt? And they couldn't leave because of all of the times in which Pharaoh changed his mind. And there were all of the plagues. The last plague was the Passover where the firstborn was killed. And in the night, the people of Israel escaped. And the Egyptians let them go because of all the things they had been through. But do you remember what happened? As they escape at night, they find themselves, this entire nation, probably over a million people, at the Red Sea. How are a million people going to cross the Red Sea? And if that wasn't bad enough, they begin to hear something behind them. And as they listen closely, they realize what they hear is the footsteps of soldiers and the wheels of chariots. And all of a sudden it becomes a little bit lighter and they look up and the entire Egyptian army has changed their mind and they're coming after Israel and they're stuck. The Red Sea here, the Egyptian army on the other side, and there's absolutely nothing they can do. And it was in that moment in which they begin to grumble and be angry at Moses and wonder why in the world they ever left in the first place. And listen to what happens. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, People of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again, because the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And you see this time and time again, when the people of God find themselves in situations where they cannot win. It is humanly impossible for them to gain the victory. At those moments, this warrior God comes in and delivers his people. 
It is the warrior God that delivered the people from Egypt. It is the warrior God that brought them across the Red Sea. It is the warrior God that brought them over the Jordan River. It is the warrior God that met Joshua one night before he went into Jericho. All throughout the Old Testament, you have this picture of this mighty hero warrior God who always comes and delivers his people and always wins. And now, Isaiah looks at you and says, this is the God that has been given to you. This warrior God, this champion, this hero of strength, this unstoppable force has been given as a gift to you. You you have been gifted with a mighty warrior. Have you ever gotten a gift that you weren't quite sure what to do with? I mean, what what do you do with this gift? I mean, this is great. Here you go. A mighty warrior God. What do you do with that gift? There was a 10-year-old boy named Joey. Joey was a great kid. He really didn't cause his parents any problems. They had a great relationship. He was one of those kids full of life and loved to go to school because he loved his friends and he was social. And everywhere he went, the teachers would say something good about Joey and just had a lot of life and energy and excitement. He always walked with a a sense of confidence about him. He just didn't seem to have a a lot of worries. All of a sudden, his his parents began to notice something was changing. They couldn't quite figure out what it was, and it was slowly over time. But Joey, who used to be so talkative, had kind of shut down a little bit. He didn't talk as much as he used to. Joey, that used to always come home and tell something funny that happened at school, now didn't say anything about what happened at school. And Joey, who always seemed to be confident, now had lost his sense of confidence. And he wouldn't look his parents in the eye anymore. And he kind of had his head down a little bit. And he would go to his room right when he got home. And he would come out for dinner and go back to his room. And his parents kept asking, Joey, what's, what's going on? He said, nothing. Everything's fine. I don't want to talk about it. But it was clear that something had changed in Joey. One day, the parents get a phone call. And it's the parents of another kid in Joey's class. They say, listen, we've kind of found out something that's happening. I don't know if you know about this, but we felt we needed to tell you because our son told us what's happening to Joey. And the reality is, is that Joey's really getting bullied at school. That there's a couple of kids that have decided that Joey's an easy target because he's just so happy. And they're just after him all the time. And he doesn't go back to his locker anymore. And he keeps his head down. He doesn't want to make eye contact with anybody. So he just stays silent all day, walks through the halls, just hoping no one will notice him. Boy, the dad hears about that, and he's ready to take out some 10-year-old kid. Like, he's really ready. You know the feeling. He's ready to go to school and just deal with this, right? But he knows that's probably not going to work. But it's it's Christmas time, and he, he wants Joey back. He wants his countenance to be lifted. He wants the old Joey back, and he just kind of thinks what to do. And he tries to talk to Joey about it, and Joey doesn't want to talk about it. And he and his wife talk about it, and they can't really come up with anything. And he thinks, what could I get Joey that would help him? And he thinks... A taser would work. That's not a good idea. He's, he's actually smart enough to know that that's not a good gift to give your 10-year-old son. He's laying in bed one night, and he's just thinking about what to do, and he has an idea. And he actually kind of chuckles to himself because he thinks of this idea. And his wife says, honey, what is it? And he said, no, I just had an idea. And she said, what? He goes, he goes don't worry about it, which is like a wife's worst nightmare. Husband has an idea, but he won't share it. No, don't, don't worry about it. I, I'm going I'm to take care of it. Listen to this. It's Christmas morning. 
And uh, Joey wakes up and he, and he comes downstairs and there's the Christmas tree and everybody's excited to see what Santa brought. And over in the corner is a, a box about the size of a refrigerator box that's totally wrapped. And Joey said, Dad, what's that? He goes, it's for you. He says, what is he? He says, well, I'm not going to tell you. You've got to wait. Well, I want to open it now. No, no, no. It's going to be the last present we open. Oh, come on, Dad. So they eat breakfast. They open some other presents. And everybody's wondering. And finally, Joey is allowed to open the box. He goes, he tears all the paper off. He rips open the box. And there's a man in there. There's just a man in a box who apparently has been standing there for hours while they opened all the other presents. Joey's dad said, Joey, I, I got you something. Dad, this is, I wanted some Legos. Like, that wasn't exactly what I was thinking. He says, listen, I was thinking about what's going on with you at school, and I was reminded of, of one of my best friends from college who, who went off into the armed forces. He was a Navy SEAL, and I found out recently that he's, he's coming off, and, uh, and he's looking for something to do, and I've hired him for you. Dad, no, this is a terrible idea. No, I'm serious. Here's what's going to happen. He's just going to go to school with you a few days. And then he looks at the man. He says, take off your jacket. He takes off his jacket. and It's a t-shirt that says, you mess with Joey, you mess with me. Joey doesn't really want to do it, but he takes the guy to school. And all of a sudden, after a couple of weeks, Joey realizes this is not a bad deal. Like his laughter becomes back and his smile comes back and all of his joy comes back. His, his chin is lifted up a little bit. His countenance is coming back. And it's not because Joey is bigger and stronger. It's not because Joey hit puberty and got muscles. It's because Joey got a defender. And now the bullies don't mess with him. Not because of Joey, but because who's Joey's guy? Well, listen to me. Life bullies us bad. Sin bullies you. Shame bullies you. Temptation and lust and relational conflict bullies you. There is an enemy that through big things and little things and simply just annoying things never relents at bullying you. And apart from all of the issues we have in ourselves, we have this constant enemy that is bullying you and bullying you and bullying you. And if you're not careful, what will happen is this, is that childlike faith that Jesus wants you to have is now gone because you've been bullied for so long. You've lost your love and your peace and your joy and your confidence. Your head is no longer up high. Your head is down low. And whether it be literal or just internally, you are walking with an incredible amount of defeat because you've been bullied for so long. You've been beaten. You've been defeated. You've been discouraged by sin. And you've tried to work up your own strength to fight back. And you've realized that it has never been able to be successful because you don't have the strength to defeat the bullies. And God knows that. God knows the way in which Satan bullies us. He's seen it from the beginning. He knows the way in which life comes at us in an unrelenting fashion. He sees the change in your countenance. And he's inviting you back into this childlike faith. But he knows that the only way that you'll ever come back to that childlike faith, where there's life and joy and peace and your chin is lifted up high, is if you get a defender. And so knowing what life is putting at you, God gives you the gift 
of a mighty warrior. He gives you an El Gabor. You say, well, that's not really the way I see Jesus. I thought Jesus was a peace-loving hippie. Jesus doesn't look like a mighty warrior. Listen, it takes quite a bit of strength to cast out every single demonic spirit that he sees. It takes a good amount of strength to tell the waves and the wind to stop, and they immediately do. It takes a good amount of strength to raise someone from the dead. It takes a good amount of strength to find every single sickness and every single disease is within his power to heal and to change. There's a massive amount of power dwelling up in Jesus Christ every moment of his life. He is a mighty warrior and a powerful God. But here's the most amazing part. His greatest moment of strength. When you see in a greater display than ever before, the mighty warrior God has been given to you was actually in his most humiliating moment. Think about it as Jesus hangs up on a tree. He's bloodied and he's beaten. There's blood that is pouring down. And there are a bunch of Goliaths standing below the cross, mocking him, saying, well, he saved others. Why didn't he save himself? And everyone is mocking and everyone is laughing. And just as it was on that battlefield a thousand years before that, here are the people of God against the other false gods. And the false gods are taunting God. Why don't you just get down? And here's the thing. At any moment, Jesus could have called thousands of angels to rescue him. But he didn't because Jesus was not killed. Jesus laid down his life. Jesus willingly laid down his life. And in that moment, as his blood was shed and his body was crucified, that is the warrior God, El Gabor, in the flesh, defeating your bullies. Through his death and his burial and his resurrection, Every single enemy that comes at us is able to be defeated because Jesus defeated them. This is why in Colossians 2, listen, it says this. It says, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love this part. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He took the weapons away from the enemies. He disarmed the enemies. So we no longer had to be enslaved to sin or to shame or to guilt. He disarmed them. He put them to open shame and he triumphed over them in Christ. So the reality is that we don't have to live enslaved to sin. We don't have to live in fear of death. We don't have to live in fear of the future and anything that is going to happen around us because we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And ultimately, we always win. That's the God who has been given to you. And then if, if that wasn't enough, if it wasn't enough to know that your sin and your shame and hell and death has been defeated... You come to Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul says, if God is for us, who who can be against us? If he did not spare his only son, how much more will he not also freely give us all things? He says, in persecution and distress and famine and danger and sword, we, because of Christ, are more than conquerors. 
It's saying the reality is, is that famine, distress, danger, and sword are still a reality because we live in a broken world. But in every single one of those things, we are more than conquerors. There is nothing in the past or the present or the future that will ultimately have victory over us. And all of a sudden, when you begin to read Romans chapter 8, what you realize is this warrior God who fought for us in his death, burial, and the resurrection is still fighting for us. And Romans chapter 8 gives us this picture of Jesus taking off his bloody robes, and under the bloody robes is a t-shirt that says this, you mess with him, you mess with me. Because he's for you, and he's with you. He's not just strong, he is on your side. And the whole point that Isaiah is trying to make is that God has given us the gift of a mighty warrior who fights for you. God has given us the gift of a mighty warrior who fights for you. I just ask you this morning, do you feel bullied? Am I the only one that feels bullied? It feels day after day, I'm just getting bullied by sin and shame and by all the kind of fear that plagues me. And after that happens for a while, we do feel a little beat down and discouraged and all of the conflict and the things around us make us feel hopeless in every way. And we feel our life and our joy leave and our head begins to go down in shame. And we long for that childlike freedom and lightheartedness, but it's gone because we've just been bullied too long And all of a sudden you realize that you're just kind of living like this. Can I remind you of Psalm 3.3? Where David says this, he says, The Lord is a shield around me. He is the glory of my life. And listen to this. And the Lord is the lifter of my head. Let me tell you what the Lord wants to do in this place this morning. The Lord wants to come to you with your head held down because you've been bullied for so long under all of the weight of sin and shame and all of the discouragement and all of the conflict. And he wants, listen, look at me, look at me. He wants to place his sovereign and loving, caring hand under your chin. He wants to lift it up. He wants to look you in the eye and say this, I'm for you. He wants to put his hand under your chin, lift you up and say, look me in the eye, look me in the eye. I love you. He wants to lift up your chin and look you right in the eye and say this, we are more than conquerors. He wants to lift up your chin and he wants to say, listen, sin and shame does not have to win over you any longer. I want to restore the childlike faith that belongs to you because of what I have done. You do not have to be controlled by fear and sin and shame any longer. He lifts up our chin. He looks us in the eye and he says this, just be strong. Don't fear. Stand firm and and be courageous. Have hope. Believe that the best is always yet to come for those who know Jesus Christ. He looks at us and he says, listen, I'm stronger than this. We're going to win. Just hold on. Life is hard, but I am good. It's going to be okay. Exactly what the Lord wants to do this morning. He wants to put his loving hand under your chin. Just lift it up and look you in the eye and say, because of me, you need to live with a new sense of confidence and joy in life. I want to restore the childlikeness. This morning, God is inviting you to let the warrior God restore you once again.